Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Second reading is Mark chapter 10, verses 2 to 16. Some Pharisees came, and to test him they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer separate, so so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Then in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them. The disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Holy God, we give you thanks for the gift of your word. And we give you thanks that you're the God who desires to be known. So we pray that we would hear you well today. We pray that you would comfort us where we need comfort, that you would convict us where we need conviction, and that in all things we might strive to make you better known through faithfulness to your will and way. We pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds, that they would be acceptable in your sight. We ask it in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the, uh, the, the lectionary, the readings, the, the sort of cycle of readings that we work through uh, here at U Hill uh, is a three-year pattern, which means that every three years, this reading comes up, and every three years, I don't like it. Uh, you know, every three years, I think, why the lectionary skips all sorts of parts of the Bible, and I think, why, why couldn't they just skip this one and give us preachers a bit of a break? because I don't want to talk about divorce. I just don't. It's such a complicated and hard thing because people are complicated and hard and blanket statements won't do. For many of us, it's a source of deep pain. For some of us, that pain is right at the surface. I'm willing to bet that I don't know anybody 
who is not in some way affected by divorce, either their own or someone else's. Now, I was talking with a couple of friends the other day uh, and uh, about this passage, and it came to light that, that all three of us were the products of marriages that ended. You know, so I, I don't really want to talk about it. But, you know, one of the things that I, I've always loved about you, Hill, is that the, there's kind of a longstanding commitment to deal with hard stuff in Scripture, even if we'd rather tiptoe around it. And so with a little bit of grace, we're going to try and deal with this, this one today. And, uh, of course, one way to deal with it is to kind of more or less explain it away, right? <laughs> As someone who's been to seminary, I have lots of cool tricks for getting around things I don't like. Um, one, of the th- one of the ways is to kind of restrict it to uh, its context, right? Make it meaningful then, but not so much now. And, and there are some interesting contextual things in this passage. Uh, you know, it's worth paying attention to, for instance, the fact that Jesus is at this point in the gospel uh, around the area of the Jordan River, which you may recall is where John the Baptist did most of his work. And uh, we, we know that uh, JB got his head cut off for making a big deal out of the fact that King Herod had married his brother's sister, or brother's wife, rather. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it could be that Jesus is sticking up for John. And confirming that the stuff John was on about is is true. When Mark tells us that the Pharisees were trying to trap him or test him, uh, it could be that they're trying to get him to say something that will put him in danger from the powers that be. We also know that that at the time there were big debates going on between uh, different groups of Pharisees. You know, like the ones that are questioning Jesus about about divorce. You know, Pharisees are are kind of a lay-led Jewish renewal movement, and their commitment is to a a wholehearted uh, adherence to God's will as found in Scripture, which, of course, demands clarity about that will and clarity about Scripture, which, of course, gives rise to all sorts of complications (laughs) interpreting Scripture, challenges about interpretation, different groups are arguing about what the right interpretation was. So maybe this group is trying to get Jesus to kind of tilt the scales a little bit. Now he's a popular rabbi, let's get him on our side. This could have more to do with first century Judaism than with 21st century Christianity. We also know, of course, that, that uh, divorce law was significantly favored, or significantly favored men in the first century. You know, a previously married woman was often left vulnerable um, without resources or protection. Perhaps this is Jesus mostly insisting that we don't get to make relationship decisions that put another person at risk. I mean, that would be consistent with Jesus' teaching and character. That's, I'm pretty sure I've actually preached that sermon before. Now, we, we know also that, that the community that Mark was writing to uh, expected the fairly imminent end of the world as we know it. Right? The, the current age is on its way out and the new age is on its way in uh, when God will get the world that God wants. And the church still affirms that. In fact, I think we could use some more urgency about the fact, but uh, it's clearly taken a little bit longer than that first (laughs) church thought it would. Uh, Maybe, as some would argue, Mark wrote something that when he didn't consider the implications of writing something that would be read 2,000 years later, given all of the cultural differences between then and now. But I do think it's worth allowing, at least for a moment, 
that Jesus actually means what he says. And I think that if we'll lean into that for a second, I think there's fruit to be gleaned, right? As we think about what it means to read this teaching and to live it in a wildly different context than it was first given. We might even wrestle a blessing from it. The first thing I think we can say without reservation is that Jesus is insisting that our relationships are not meant to break down. Right? That's not what we're made for. And I say that precisely. That's not what we're made for. That's a key reality. See, the Pharisees likely expected Jesus to turn to some part of Leviticus or Deuteronomy, some of the law code. And instead, he dives all the way back to Genesis. Right? He goes right back to the beginning. He points to the world as God intended it to be. Before things went sideways in every relationship, not just marriages, every relationship bore the marks of that primordial dysfunction. There, in that scene, we're made for covenants that are kept. We're made for partnerships that help the world flourish. We're made for the kinds of intimacy that make new life, either literally or metaphorically. Now, Christian faith is rooted in the hope that and promise that we're caught up with the God who makes promises and keeps them. And Genesis is bold to say that we are made in the image of that God, the the God of steadfastness, of relentless pursuit, of abiding and self-giving love, of extravagant forgiveness. When things are as God intends, it's clear that we are made for that stuff too, whether we're married or not. And Jesus is bold to say that in him, in him, in his presence, and in, in and through his, his presence, the world that God wants is on the horizon. We can catch a glimpse of it right now. In and through him, the way things were meant to be is the way that they will be. And his unwavering call is for followers to start to live that future now. Right? Let God's future invade our present. Let God's promises and nothing less shape our lives, shape how we live and move and have our being in this world. I mean, I think that's what it means to find ourselves in the thick of, of Jesus' first sermon in, John, in, in uh, Mark's gospel, where he says, repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, to repent is more than to say sorry or to feel badly about doing the things that we shouldn't or not doing the things that we should. It's to choose consciously and completely God's goodwill for us and for all things. It's to let ourselves be consumed with love for God and for one another. And I think at the heart of this argument with this particular group of Pharisees is the fact that that can't really be legislated. Right? We're called to more than we're allowed to do or not do. It's a biblical truth that the prophets are kind of obsessed with, you know, that, that follow it, we can follow all the rules and still not live into the fullness for which we're created. We can follow all the rules and still not live into the fullness for which we're created. I mean, take the, the Ten Commandments, for instance. We're fairly well known. There's 613 commandments in the Hebrew Scriptures. If you want to stick around and go through them all, <laughs> I've got things to do this afternoon, so we can't do that. But let's stick to the Big Ten for the moment, right? I can follow all of those beautiful commandments, and they are beautiful commandments. They're the commands of the free. I can follow all of those beautiful commandments perfectly and literally and still be a rotten husband, and still be a terrible boss, still be a lackluster friend, 
Now I can stay perfectly within the, the bounds of what is permissible and still be judgmental and unkind. Now just managing not to kill my neighbor does not make me a good neighbor. It helps, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's kind of the least I can do. Rules, as valuable as they are, and I do, I think they are valuable. Don't, I'm not vying for anarchy here. But rules tell us just about how far we can go before we're over the line. Right? Jesus is at very least calling us, as God always has, to more than we can get away with. The folks questioning Jesus in this passage seem to be looking for, for relationship loopholes, or, or at least debating whether there are any. And to that question, Jesus says, no, there aren't. And of course, then our wheels start turning, right? <laughs> I mean, we have lengthy lists of what abouts. If you're anything like me, you probably jump to the worst possible scenario and say, what about this, Jesus? I, I, I think that's why Jesus has to continue the conversation with the disciples behind closed doors. You, you can kind of imagine them coming with all kinds of scenarios. Like, what about this, Jesus? What about this, Jesus? You know, and obviously on this side of things, <laughs> Uh, because the world is not as God wants it, because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, there are obviously reasons for relationships to end. Obviously. Obviously, there are times when it's decidedly less loving to insist that a marriage continue than that, that it end. And I also believe that ours is the God who binds up the broken heart. Ours is the God who gets down in the ash heap in the rubble of our best laid plans and broken promises and lifts us up to build something new. Ours is the God who prays from the cross, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Ours is the Savior who refuses to condemn a woman caught in adultery and instead offers forgiveness and redemption and grace. Do you know this story? Do you remember this story from John 8? If you don't know this story, go home and read it. Say John 8, chapter 1, verse, or John 8. Verse 1 to 11, it's a scene where a bunch of religious folks drag a woman in front of Jesus and they say, Jesus, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. She is in the process of messing up at least one marriage. And the religious folks remind Jesus that the rules uh, are that she should be stoned to death for, this, uh, for, for what she's done. That would be the punishment. And they have their stones ready. They, they have come prepared for the rules to be enacted. And that's when Jesus gives that kind of famous line. Whoever's without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. Right? And then he kneels down, he plays in the dirt for a while. And we don't know why he does that, but he does. He kneels down and plays in the dirt, kind of turns away from the situation. But what he can certainly hear is the stones falling one by one by one onto the ground. And people walking silently away, not one stone thrown. And then he looks up, and the woman is there all by herself. And he says to her, is there no one left to condemn you? She says, no. He says, huh, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. Go and start again. Uncondemned. It's, it's glorious. It's this beautiful moment. Spend some time in it this week. You know, where the rules would have taken a life, the way of Jesus restores it. Where the rules would have taken a life, the way of Jesus restores it. 
So on, on one hand, I think we want to say that Jesus' response to the disciples makes it pretty clear that he wants to take, down the, take the breakdown of our relationships, married or otherwise. He wants us to take the breakdown of relationships with life and death seriousness. Right? We're made in the image of God who makes promises and keeps them. The God who is faithful to the end. The one who moves towards us even when we don't deserve it. That's the default. That's the image we're made in. That's uh, essential to us. It matters. And in the light of that story from John's gospel, and since Jesus in this passage uses scripture to complicate scripture, I'm going to go ahead and risk doing the same. I think there's something redemptive, even sacramental. That means uh, like a sign of God's grace about our willingness, our capacity to make new promises and commitments even after the pain of a relationship breaking down. I mean, the fact is, some of the most beautiful and God-drenched marriages I know are not first ones. You know, another cornerstone of Christian faith is the fact that the God in whose image we are made sometimes makes a new covenant. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't negate the older covenant because God can hold intention things we can't. But when God makes a new covenant, it makes a whole new world possible. It's redemptive. And of course, possibility always comes with a hint of mystery to it, right? And I can't help but think, uh, as we were listening to it, I mean, the, the change between one half of our reading and the other half, I mean, it's <laughs> breakneck speed, right? Like, Mark did not take his time on the corners here. Changes directions almost immediately. But I can't help but think that because uh, Jesus has made a new way possible, that Mark puts this story alongside the story of the children, alongside the other half of what we read this morning, in order to continue to complicate our general desire to have a clear and consistent order and expectations. You know, the Pharisees in question wanted to know about rules and regulations. In the next scene, Jesus' disciples seem to have developed some expectations about how people ought to be and act in Jesus' company, right? I feel like they've heard Jesus kind of unflinching teaching about marriage and decided that that should translate into the very sort of rigidity that Jesus actually undermines in his confrontation with the Pharisees. There's a sort of parallel between the Pharisees' desire for order and clarity for hard and fast rule keeping, and the disciples disdain for the children who are causing a ruckus around Jesus. It's as if they heard him say that life in him is serious business, and it is serious business. But they miss the fact that it's also seriously joyful business, that it's messy and noisy and complicated and wonderful because that is how we are, <laughs> even if we sometimes wish it were otherwise. You know, just when we're in danger of making following Jesus about appropriate behavior, insisting that the kingdom of God will be a tightly run realm, Mark drops us in the middle of a kindergarten class, and Jesus says it's going to be more than like that. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is going to be more like a kindergarten class than anything. I mean, it's an evocative image, isn't it? When Jesus tells us that if we don't receive the kingdom like a child, we won't receive it at all. I think it invites some imagination about what it means to be in on what God's doing. It suggests that to be a follower of Jesus should be an exercise in, in wonder and exploration. 
And I'm reading this book right now called On Looking, uh, A Walker's Guide to Observations, written by a woman named Alexander, Alexandra Horowitz. Um, and in this book, she accompanies various sort of experts in all sorts of different fields on walks through New York, through different places, uh, and allows their expertise to help her see things that she otherwise would have missed. But the first walk she takes, uh, the first walk she describes in this book is with her three-year-old son, <laughs> who more or less refuses to go on any sort of a straight path walk uh, or pay attention to the direction that she thinks they should go. And instead he gets enthralled with these little delights that anyone with important things to do would, would miss. The world comes alive in the company of a three-year-old. And I think this image uh, suggests a kind of vulnerability that we need to have if we'll be in relationship with God, right? Jesus says that the kingdom, kingdom is a, a reality that's received, not achieved. Kingdom of God's a reality that's received, not achieved. We don't take it or make it. It's a gift to be lived into. It requires a kind of childlike openness and dependence that we've, that, that's pretty quickly trained out of us in our culture, isn't it? I mean, we're not supposed to be vulnerable. We tend to do everything we can to give the impression that we are not vulnerable, but we are vulnerable. Of course we are. And Jesus invites us to grow back into our inherent childlikeness, to acknowledge our needs, trusting that God is a very good parent, the one who delights to give good gifts to their children. Now, the image of childlikeness beckons us towards imagination, towards playfulness and curiosity and all sorts of delightful things. And I'm inclined to meditate on those lovely attributes uh, of kids. And so we should, as we think about what it means to get in on what God's doing in and around us. But of course, kids are not invariably angelic, are they? <laughs> now, the, the scene Mark describes suggests that these kids are making themselves seen and heard in unseemly ways. Toddlers are wonderful and also exhausting. And every once in a while, just, just a little bit frustrating. <laughs> you know, dependence is beautiful in one way, and it's kind of annoying in another, especially if you're short on sleep. <laughs> yeah, sometimes kids make a mess of themselves, which uh, I think is an apt metaphor for most adult lives. And yet, and yet, Jesus says it's all good when it comes to receiving the kingdom. Even then, even when we make a mess of ourselves, Jesus is glad to take us up in his arms and bless us. Jesus is not afraid of our mess and mayhem. And he wants our wonder and our delight. He doesn't tell us to make kids into little adults. He tells us to watch them and become like them. And of course, reflecting on this passage in the wake of Orange Shirt Day this week reminds us how badly we miss the mark, how wretchedly we can behave when we get it into our heads that the kingdom of God conforms to our cultural expectations. Right? The violence and devastation inflicted on our indigenous siblings, on children, on children, is impossible to reconcile with this teaching of Jesus. And it's what happens when we think that the kingdom of God looks like us. And so we have to make everyone else look like us too, by whatever means necessary. 
Jesus says it's not true. That's why a significant part of reconciliation, a huge part of the Christian life, is repentance, that choosing a way that is not our own. And sometimes we need to repent of things that we think are invariably good. And sometimes we need to repent of things that we cling to if we'll open our hands to receive the kingdom. And when our way becomes the way, the way then we've lost sight of God's kingdom and we're heading in another direction. When our way becomes the way, we've lost sight of God's kingdom and we're heading another direction. So our call, I think, in the wake of these two texts is more and more and in the company of Jesus to choose the way of expansive love, to choose the way of holy surprise at the way that God is at work in us and others, to allow for a healing that may feel like it's beyond our capacity, to refuse to do just what is permissible and to choose what is possible in the messy and marvelous way of Jesus. And so may God grant us grace and healing where we need it. May may we know God's deep forgiveness and freedom from shame. May God grant us the courage to repent of the things, even the apparently good things, that keep us from fully receiving the goodness that God longs for us and for all creation. May God grant us boldness to grow into our childlikeness in the deep confidence that we and everyone we meet is a child in whom God delights. In the name of Jesus, who became a child for us. Amen. Thank you.